Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Shane Hatfield. I'm the campus minister for Grace Stillwater and for the PCA to Oklahoma State University. And I'm, I'm thankful to get to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We are going to look at Genesis, which is what the, our, the college students have been looking at all semester. Uh, our sermon series was titled, In the Beginning, uh, and we really looked at the foundations of the Christian worldview from the beginning of the Bible. And we talked about how the Christian worldview lays the foundation for our lives, and how that worldview is more beautiful and more believable than any other worldview. Uh, this sermon is actually a sermon that I didn't get to preach, because Francis was in the hospital and I had to miss RUF. So I'm excited about to, give it, uh, to deliver it to you guys and to the college students. Uh, it's called, In the Beginning, Created for the Temple. And I'm going to start reading uh, in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start reading in verses 4. We're going to read 4 through 17, and then skip over to Genesis 3 and read 22 to 24. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now skip to Genesis 3, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, east of the, at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning as people who were driven from your garden. People who were created to live with you, to see you, to know you, and to experience you. But a people who are fallen and broken by sin so that we cannot come into your presence on our own. But Father, we pray that by your grace and through the work of Jesus, that we would be able to meet with you this morning through your word. We have already sang to you. We have already praised you. We have already prayed to you. And now we ask that you would show us your face that we would experience the blessings of your good word and that that would transform us. And that that would give us a taste of the heaven that is to come. 
Even now, we pray that you would do this through Jesus and your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to start out by a little par- uh, by telling you a little parable. Uh, and this parable is a parable that David Foster Wallace used at the beginning of his essay called uh, What is Water? Okay? And I'm going to reference that later on, so it's important that you kind of get the, the idea of the parable. David Foster Wall says, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish that's swimming the other way. And as the two young fish are swimming along, they pass this older fish. The older fish kind of nods to him and says, how's the water? And the two younger fish are kind of confused, and they, you know, the older fish swims on, and the two younger fish swim on. And after a little bit, the two younger fish look at each other, and they go, what's water? They, these young fish didn't know that they were living in water, that their entire world was surrounded by something that was so vital to their existence, but they didn't see it and they didn't understand it until this older fish spoke into their world and said, and, and really introduced them to water in a lot of ways. Right? Opened their eyes to an entire new world that, that was around them that they didn't know existed. This morning, as we look at this text and as we talk about one of the major topics of the Bible, uh, <laughs> what I hope to do to you this morning is ask you, what is water? What I hope to show you is that there's a water that we all live in, that we all exist in, that we very rarely think about and we might not even know it exists. It exists so deeply in our subconscious that we miss it. And that water is worship. We live in a world filled with worship. We are worshipers. And because we live in a world filled with worship, and because we're worshipers, we create temples to worship in. And we create rituals to perform in those temples. And what I want you to see is that there is only one temple, and there's only one God where we can experience the true God that will meet our deepest needs, and our deepest desires. And that true God is the God of the Bible. And that temple is His church. And we are actually moving towards a day when God's temple comes down and we experience Him and His blessings face to face. So we're going to look at this under three headings. We're going to look at how we're created for the temple, how we're rescued by the temple, and then how we're waiting for the temple. We're created for the temple, we're rescued by the temple, and we're waiting for the temple. The first thing that we see here is that we created for a temple. Genesis 1 is God creating the entire universe. And one of the ways you can look at Genesis 1 is to think about God creating this entire universe as a temple where His glory dwells, that praises Him and proclaims Him. Well, then when you get to Genesis 2, you see that Genesis 2 has a narrower focus. The focus of Genesis 2 is on man and woman in this garden. A garden where God is with them intimately and personally. Where they experience Him and His blessings. And one of the ways to think about Genesis 2 is that in Genesis 2, we're in the temple. But we're not just in the temple in general. We are in the Holy of Holies. Where we come face to face with God and we experience Him and all of His blessings. Now, if you are 
uh, unfamiliar with the Bible, I'm going to reference some terms from the Old Testament. I'm going to I'm going to talk about some temple things, and don't let that lose you. I think you can still make the connection. But I would just encourage you that if if you're not familiar with these terms, to go to Exodus and read through Exodus, and you'll pick up some of this temple language. But if you read through Exodus and then you come back and you look at Genesis two, what you realize is that the garden was a temple. Okay? Temples had priests. Who is the priest in the garden? The priest is Adam. A priest's job is to mediate between God and man. Adam's job was to represent us between God. To mediate between us and God. Okay? The temple had water. The water was for cleansing. The water was a provision. What did the garden have? The garden had rivers of water that were flowing out of it. The temple had the bread of the presence. It had food. What was the bread of the presence in the garden? It was the trees that God had made all over the place to provide everything that Adam and his people would need. The the temple had the Word of God. There was a place in the temple called the Ark. The Ark housed the Word of God, which was literally the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. Well, what was the Word of God in the garden? The Word of God was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the Word that they were supposed to obey and trust in faith. So here was a garden, here was an entire world where man got to be with God face to face and experience all His provision and all of His blessings. God would have comfort that came, not God, Man would have comfort that came from God. Man would have approval that came from God. Man would have security that came from God and power that came from God. We were created to live in this temple and receive all of God's blessings as His dependent creatures. Well, we know in Genesis 3 that Adam disobeyed God. When he disobeyed God, he died. God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you, sh- you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam dies, and one of the weird things we see is he doesn't physically die right away. But he spiritually dies. He experiences guilt and shame. Then, after God uh, curses the ground and curses um, Adam and Eve's vocation and curses the serpent, then we have this really interesting text that we read where God kicks out Adam and Eve from the garden. He exiles them. And he uses this really curious phrase. He says, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So now, man tries to discern good and evil from himself rather than trusting God. Then he says this, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. Then he kicks man out of the garden. What he's saying is, if Adam and Eve at this point were to eat from the tree of life, they would be stuck in their fallenness. They would be eternally cursed, eternally damned. They would be eternally dead. They would be eternally... Remember, what is death? Death is separation. They would be eternally separated from God. So this exile is actually a gift of God's grace so that they won't be stuck in eternal separation. So then he spatially... To keep them from doing that, he spatially separates them. He kicks them out of the garden and he puts... What? He puts two things at the east end of the garden to protect them. He puts the cherubim. The cherubim were these uh, spiritual animals, spiritual beings that are represented on the Ark of the Covenant, and they protect the holy seat of God. 
so that Israel, it, it was a sort of a demarker saying that Israel could not get to the, the mercy seat. And then he puts this flaming sword. And the flaming sword turns every which way. That means that there's no way you can get past it. And the flaming sword is the sword of judgment. And it's saying that if any fallen creature tries to get in and eat the tree of life, God is going to judge that creature. He's going to judge it. You can't get to the tree of life without falling through the sword. So God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and they're exiled. Now the problem is they're still worshipers. They're still created for a temple. They still have deep needs and desires. They need security. They need approval. They need power. And they need comfort. That's us. All, that's the human race. The human race is kicked out of the place where they experience God and all of His benefits. And because of that, we, and because we're worshipers and we're created for those things, we erect our own temples to worship our own gods that we think are going to meet those needs. We look to those gods to meet those needs. Now the obvious ones would be the religious gods, right? There are other religions aside from Christianity. Newsflash, right? Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons. They're all erecting temples to worship God that they think will give them their deepest needs. But there are also irreligious temples and irreligious gods and irreligious rituals that people are performing all over the world and that even we are performing to meet our deepest needs. Okay? A false god is any good thing from creation that we make an ultimate thing. And what we do is we take these good things, we elevate them to ultimate things, we build temples in which we interact with those gods, and we look to those things to give us what only God can give us. That's what David Foster Wallace began to dig into in this essay, This is Water. He gave this essay at a commencement at Kenyon College uh, in May of 2005. And I just want to read this. I just want to read what he says. Now he's talking as somebody who doesn't believe in God. But how many of us Christians will resonate with this? And how do we see this in our culture? Think about that. This is what he says. Because here is something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. But the insidious things about these form of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. We would say they are, but he doesn't. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. What's he saying? He's saying that we're all worshipers. And we all have houses of worship where we go to worship our false gods to give us the things that only God can give us. 
And so I would ask you, what do you worship? What is the good thing that you've made an ultimate thing? And then where do you worship it? You see, because we're worshipers, we can transform anything into a temple. It could be our workplace. If you go to work every day trying to look for your approval based on your work, then you have turned your work into a temple. And everything you do there is a sacrifice so that that God will give you what you need. What if it's your home? What if you've turned your home into a place where you find comfort and security? If that's true, then everything you do for the kids, every, every broom that you move, every vacuum that you push, every dish that you clean becomes the sacrifice that you make to your God to give you the comfort and security that you need. What if it's the ball field? What if it's the gym? You go to the gym to transform your body so that you'll be beautiful and pretty and people will love you and like you. What have you done? You've elevated the comfort and security that comes from a beautiful body. You've sacrificed at the gym to get that body and you're hoping that that God will meet your deepest needs. And the problem is that all of those temples and all of those gods will destroy us. And they'll leave us grieving, broken, and bruised people. Those gods and those temples cannot meet our deepest needs. So what God does in the Bible, the good news of the Bible, the good news of the Gospel, is that God is creating a temple where He can be with us and we can experience all of His benefits. One way of reading the rest of the Bible is reading it sort of through this temple and worship lens. And I wish I had more time to... to explain this all explicitly and go into all the details, but I don't. But if you want to talk to me later, I can give you some text of the Bible to read. And what's fascinating is to go and look at the garden and then look at the different temples throughout the Bible and make all the connections between the different elements in those temples. And then ask yourself, what's the symbolism behind it? What's the grace that's being shown there? What is the need that that is meeting? We've already talked about the, the, uh, the, the Exodus temple, right? God brings His people out of Egypt. He builds this temple. He gives them all these elements. But there's one new element in the Exodus temple that wasn't in the garden. And what's that? The sacrifices. The sacrifices had to be performed so that the people could go in and experience the blessings of God. But it was limited because only the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. The purpose of the temple was the same. Uh, God tells Moses, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the Exodus tabernacle was there as a place for the people of God to meet with God. Then after that, you get to David and Solomon. And David uh, wants to build the temple, but God says no. His, he, he gathers all the resources. His son Solomon builds a temple, a permanent place where God and His people can meet and they can experience His benefits. They have everything they need right there, but they fail, right? They worship false gods. They worship other nations. They're fallen, broken creatures. And then what happens to them? They're exiled again. Sound like a familiar story? Just like Adam and Eve. The same story just repeats itself 
in Israel's life. They're exiled. Then you get to Ezekiel 40. While they're in exile, God meets with the prophet Ezekiel. And he, said, and he gives them a vision of a new temple where God's Spirit dwells with His people. And He finishes that vision with the, the idea of a temple with living water flowing out of it. And as the water flows out of that temple, it renews everything it touches and it brings healing to the nations. Well, Israel gets out of exile. They go back. They build the second temple. But the, never, the second temple never had quite as much glory as the first temple. But even Jesus acknowledged that the second temple was still the house of God. Jesus said, he, he came in and when the Pharisees wanted to make it a den of robbers, he tried to clean it out. Right? He said, this is my Father's house. It should be a house of prayer for the nations. Right? And then Jesus does something crazy that they would have never thought of. He points to the temple and he says, this temple will be destroyed and raised again in three days. But he wasn't at the second temple, which eventually was destroyed, he was pointing at himself. Then one of the amazing things that you see as you read, especially the book of John, is you start to realize that all of the different elements in the temple, they all have significance, and Jesus at some point assumes all of them onto himself. What does Jesus say? What does God say about Jesus in John 1? Jesus, it says that Jesus was the Word of God and that God tabernacled among us in the form of Jesus. Right? What does it say about Jesus in John 4 and 7? It says that Jesus is living water. John 6 says that Jesus is the bread of life. John 1 says that Jesus is the Lamb of God. In John 17 and Luke 23, we see that Jesus is a high priest His forgiveness to His people. And in John 2.19 is where Jesus says that this temple is going to be destroyed and raised again in three days. He's pointing at Himself. What Jesus was doing was He was becoming the temple to come and rescue us so that He could be the place where we met with God face to face and we experienced all of His benefits. He was opening the way so that we could go back to the garden. Think back to the garden. There was that flaming sword that guarded the way to the tree of life. Somebody had to go underneath that sword and and experience the judgment of God to open the way so that we could go back into the garden and eat from the tree of life. Somebody had to be the sacrifice. That sacrifice was Jesus. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He went underneath the sword of God's judgment to open the way so that we could eat from the tree of life. And He is that tree of life. He's the place where we experience all of God's benefits. He's the place where we get our comfort. He's the place where we get our approval. He's the place where we get our security. He's the place where we get our power. He was rescuing us and giving us a place and a person to worship who could actually meet our deepest needs. If that's true, I think it is, If Jesus is the true and greater temple, then what's going to happen to us is we are going to die a thousand deaths every day. But in Jesus, we're actually going to have life. What David Foster Wallace said is that if you worship anything else, you're going to die a thousand deaths, and then you're going to grieve. He eventually committed suicide. 
what the gospel tells us is that we're going to die a thousand deaths, but that those deaths are going to bring us life in Jesus Christ. Confession. Yesterday I had a horrible day. <laughs> I had an awful day. You guys ever had awful days? Right. Well, my awful days usually end like this. They usually go through this cycle, right? I have an awful day, and then somehow or somewhere I end up doing yard work. And it's like yard, the, the yard becomes my temple, right? Where I'm mowing, I'm weed eating, I'm cutting branches, I'm cutting limbs. Why? Because I have a God of approval, and that is the way in which I'm going to meet those needs. That's the way I'm going to get approval. I'm going to go out there, I'm going to do all this yard work, and when I'm all done, my yard work God is going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And I could tell you after about six hours of this, <laughs> actually, kids are so insightful. <laughs> uh, I, it, 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 actually, at night when I was laying Emery down to, to go to bed, she said, Daddy, will you pray for me? And I said, sure. And she said, but Daddy, why were you so angry today? Why were you so mad? She picked up on it. Right? I I was hurting her, I was hurting my family, because I was worshiping my own God and my own temple. And if I continue to do that, I'm going to die a thousand deaths. Right. But thanks to Jesus Christ, I can experience forgiveness for my own sins. I can go and apologize to my wife. I can go and apologize to my kids. I can come in here. I can worship. I can experience the benefits of God because Jesus paid for those sins. That's true worship. That's life-giving worship. That's what we experience in Jesus. So what I want you to do is to think about where, what are the gods that you worship? What are the temples? What are the rituals that you interact with? College students, you're about to go into the temples next week of finals, right? And you're looking for those gods to meet some need, but the only thing that's going to meet your need is Jesus. If you go in worshiping the God of school, you're going to die a thousand deaths. But if you go in there with the approval and love and security of your Heavenly Father, then the finals won't kill you. It's actually going to be a place where you find life. If Jesus is the true and greater temple, then He's the only place where we're going to find life. If Jesus is the true and greater temple, then, he, then also the church is the place where we find life. Because after Jesus leaves, what do the New Testament writers start referring to as the temple? It's the church in both corporate formal worship like this and informal uh, community worship like community groups, small groups. Those are the places where we find Jesus and those are the places where we find life. Everything here is a means of grace set up for us to experience God and His blessings. We experience God through the Word of God preached and taught, through the Word of God sung, through the sacraments. We're about ready to watch a baptism where we get to see that through Jesus Christ, our sins are washed away and we're united with Him. This, this gym is not just a gym where kids play kickball and get balls stuck up in the ceiling, although that's there. This is a place where we experience the goodness and greatness of God and all of His grace because the Holy Spirit is here. If that's true, then corporate worship matters. That this place is important. That what we do here is not just ordinary, it's special because it's enlivened by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is the true and greater temple, then you know what that makes us? His priests. That means when we leave here today, we actually are priests that take God's Spirit 
and God's presence out into the world. And that's what, tra- that's what transforms our other tabernacles. See, when you go to work and you bring the Spirit of God, it's a place where you can glorify God and where you can mediate God's presence to the people at your work. You can do that at home. You can do that at the golf course. You can do that in the gym. As long as you're worshiping Jesus, you're going to be somebody who brings living water wherever you go. If you worship other things, you're going to bring death. But if you worship Jesus, you're going to bring life. And that's going to bring healing to the nations. Ezekiel's vision, right, in Ezekiel 40, was that the water would go out and bring life. That living water lives in us. Jesus says, whoever comes and drinks of this water will live, and out of him will flow living waters. Living waters can flow out from you wherever you go and transform all of your other temples. And it's that water that sustains us and changes us as we wait for the future temple to come back. You see, the Bible is fascinating. It begins and ends with a temple. There's the garden temple, and then there's the city temple. And if you go to Revelation 21 and 22, and I would encourage you to do this this week. Unfortunately, I don't have time to read it all. But what you're going to see is that the elements that were there in the garden are there in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back and He establishes the new Jerusalem here on earth. There's rivers of living water. There's precious stones. There's the tree of life. And more importantly, there's God and His presence. The thing that we're waiting for, the thing we're longing for more than anything else is to see God face to face and experience those blessings. And when that happens, for the first time, we're going to be home. All of us are actually waiting in exile, waiting for our true home to come. And if you've seen Wally, the movie Wally, you know this beautiful picture, right? Wally is about a little robot on a post apocalyptic earth that is filled with trash, right? And Wally's job is to go out and compact that trash and try to reorganize all this trash on earth. Well, the All the humans live in outer space and they send this probe back and the probe finds a plant. It finds a little bit of life, right? And that plant means that earth is inhabitable again so that people can come back. So the probe and Wally go back up to the spaceship and they take, it's funny, the plant is in this little boot. It's so cute, right? It's made for kids. It's made for adults too, though. Uh, They take the plant back to the ship. The captain of the ship finds the plant. He's he's learning all about the history of the world. They've been living in outer space for 700 years. It's really fascinating. So their bodies are like overweight and pudgy and they can't walk and they've lost all their bone density. Uh, It's it's prophetic, right? Uh, They they drive around on screen. Like these little carts, they don't move and they just look at these screens all the time. I don't know. We could just have an entire sermon about Wally. But anyways, the point is, they look at this plant and when the captain looks at this plant, and he hears the story, he finds out that they can finally go home. That for 700 years, they've been exiled in outer space, away from earth. And when they see this planet, they can finally go home. And he says, we're going home for the first time. When the new heavens and the new earth come back here, we're going to be going home for the first time. And we actually get to see and experience and taste a little bit of that in corporate worship every week with the body of Christ. So let's pray that God would make that real to our hearts right now. Father in heaven, we thank you 
that You have saved us from our false worship, that You have loved us and pursued us in Jesus. You have given us Your Son. You have given us all the blessings of being with You even though we don't deserve it. And we pray right now, God, that we would have a taste of You and Your goodness and that we would get a foretaste of what it's going to be like to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Give us a foretaste of what it's like to go home for the first time. I pray that that would be real, and I pray that we would go out and be priests and and be living water wherever we go to transform all of our other places, our home, our gym, our workplace, the classroom. I pray that we would bring your living water everywhere and that you would bring healing to the nations through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.